0: This episode is brought to you in part by the Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Darrell Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at
1: dts.edu slash the table.
0: You know the faith community, in particular the, the Christian community across the country and around the world. Um, the church is the place where you find the, the nuggets of hope.
1: This is a podcast about two things, helping those with urgent needs in front of us today and improving the road so others can walk it safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're learning how to do good better, whether in everyday interactions or complex humanitarian challenges, including those of how people cross borders like we're looking at today. I'm Kentan, co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. I'm joined by my colleague Jamie Aiton and our producer, Laura Finch. And today we're talking with Ali Nurani, president and CEO of the National Immigration Forum, fellow at the Arizona State University Social Transformation Lab, and author of the new book Crossing Borders. Ali, welcome. We're so glad that you're with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really looking forward
0: to this conversation.
1: Ali, there is no um, shortage of news that falls into your area of expertise Uh, right now. At least four have been in the news headlines recently. I'm thinking of the U.S.-Mexico border regularly, Afghan evacuees, what status will be granted, Ukrainian refugees, ongoing issues of undocumented neighbors within our country like dreamers. Could you use these four examples to kind of give us a broad picture of what are the main issues that we're wrestling with right now as a nation of immigrants?
0: Well, so we're going to be talking for, I guess my first answer to the quote, my first question, to, my first answer in this podcast will only be two hours long. So, yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I mean, look, you know, we are at a global level looking at record numbers of people forcibly displaced. You know, the most recent numbers that don't even include the, you know, at least 5 million teams now from Ukraine is 84 million people forcibly displaced around the world, which means that um, borders are under tremendous pressure. And this dip- these displacements occur as a result of war, like what we're seeing in, in um, Ukraine, Uh, Poverty, crime, corruption, uh, climate change. Um, And what this all leads to as a result is that as Americans who are every day trying to figure out how they are going to make sure that their children are going to do better than them. Uh, they are looking at their phones, looking at their television screens, looking at their newspaper, and seeing this mass migration occurring around the world. Mm-hmm. And it tr- creates a deep sense of fear that our borders are out of control um, and that you know the government needs to do something to regain control. And I think for too long, doing something meant to treat Uh, immigrants and refugees in the harshest way possible. Uh, And I think what we're seeing uh, these days is a really, really visceral debate at a national level, much less at a local level of, okay, how do we as a country really uphold our values to treat people with dignity, but also um, remain a nation that is secure?
2: So Ali used a couple of words there as you were sharing that really kind of stood out to me. One of those was that for many people, this conversation can strike a sense of fear, but you, and you also use the term visceral. What seems to be fueling this fear and these kind of visceral reactions?
0: Well, in my and in, in, in the book that just came out, uh, "Crossing Borders," I actually went back to the 2015 Syrian refugee crisis, and you know tried to to unpack what were the the who was. Triggering that fear, and then really, how did it? How did it kind of? Uh, um, how was it realized or felt by people on the ground? And in 2015, what you saw in Hungary was the Prime Minister Viktor Orbán really weaponized Syrian migration, the Syrian refugee crisis, so that he was, in essence, saying that Syrian refugees should not be allowed into Hungary, much less the European Union, because uh, um, they were not Christian. And so he was playing into Quite frankly, the early days of you know this iter- this most recent iteration of Christian nationalism, um, and really painting the Syrian refugee as a threat not only from a a you know a security perspective but also from a cultural perspective, and then you saw kind of similar strategies, political strategies being used in the UK and then here in the US, um, and what this leads people to believe is that you know their identity is under attack. Uh, and that those who want to welcome immigrants and refugees into communities are looking to change the identity of the of, of americans um, so you know it's a it's a it's a fear in a big picture way that is a combination of culture security and the economy but it really boils down to really people feeling like their identity is is going to be taken away from them
1: as you look at those examples of, of where fear is so powerful it's often hard to have the a positive narrative fight against the negative narrative but what are examples you've looked at or you have hope for um, where that shift can be really positive where having immigrants come in can be really positive for the community what what's what do you look for as your kind of touch points of hope that that narrative of fear doesn't have to win
0: that's such an important question kent because um you know i think that you know the faith community, in particular, the, the Christian community across the country and around the world. Um, the church is the place where you find the the nuggets of hope, um, because whether it is, you know, the, the church um, who has engaged in refugee resettlement or protection overseas through a mission trip or who are welcoming Afghan evacuees, um, that is really where you see these not just these conversations take place of, OK, what does, what does the faith really ask us to do in terms of welcoming the stranger, but the infrastructure and the community that is built around uh, churches in, well, quite frankly, very conservative parts of the country that really buck the tide or buck the conventional wisdom um, at a national level in terms of what, you know, the threats immigrants or refugees face or, or pose. Um, so I do think that there are, you know, so many places across the country. In fact, I, I wrote about one um, in Idaho, in Southern Idaho, and uh, su- southern Idaho in 2016 was really one of the key epicenters of the Syrian refugee crisis from a political perspective. Um, but what you saw in Idaho uh, in response was conservative Idaho dairymen who saw it as not just their economic interest, but their responsibility as people of faith to stand shoulder to shoulder with immigrants and refugees in Southern Idaho to push back against these narratives uh, and f- quite frankly, welcome immigrants and refugees, whether they're from Central America, Syria or Africa, into their community.
2: Well, what a powerful example and, and a, a good reminder of the roles that we can play and how we can respond. You know, I'm, I'm curious, as you were talking about these farmers that were welcoming refugees and immigrants into their communities, what or how do you understand the difference where we see this kind of up and down response in the U S that, you know, maybe there's one group of refugees or immigrants that we're afraid of, but then there's another group where we're trying to support and welcome them. And I'm thinking in particular right now of kind of the drastic differences between like the Syrian refugee crisis that you shared with just a moment ago. And now the Ukraine crisis.
0: Well, when you look back over the last year, Uh, And you mentioned this at the beginning of the conversation. You know, if we were having this conversation last summer, we would be talking about the evacuation of tens of thousands of Afghan allies. And what happens there is that, you know, the U.S. welcomes these Afghans with open arms because it was the veterans community by and large that stepped forward and said, these are our allies. We fought with them against the Taliban. Then remember, a month or two later, you saw 10,000 plus Haitians Uh, present at the U.S.-Mexico border to ask for asylum, and they are summarily expelled by the Biden administration. And now you have, you know, the the tragedy in Ukraine and the millions who are streaming into Europe and slowly making their way to the U.S. So there is, like you said, a a very up-and-down approach or response to immigration here in the States. The challenge for us, or the opportunity, I should say, is that rather than, you know, shaming people for you know, the the dissonance of the reactions. How do we use these reactions, say, to the Afghan evacuation or to Ukrainian refugees to expand the conversation around the value of immigrants and refugees to the United States? So some of this, I think, is, is, you know, quite frankly, in the worst, you know, in in the worst of crises, understanding the opportunities that they present to help uh, um, our neighbors better understand um, what the value is of immigrants, but to be able to see uh, immigrants and refugees instead of kind of being a community to be afraid of, but really a, a community to, to value.
1: I appreciated that. You and I met a few years ago. I, I was there with um, at the World Relief and Matt Sorens and others who had organized event and spent the day lobbying and doing a press conference there. And just in that answer you gave, I love the, the way you're able to see opportunity, whatever the challenges are. Ali, in your leadership and working with faith communities and with politicians, to do that, as you mentioned that and seeing these opportunities, what would you say if you could make three policy changes right now? You temporarily have, you know, the the gridlock is here, but you're temporarily granted power—presidential and congressional power—to make (laughs) three—to make three policy changes. That would be not just your vision, but you think could, you know, could eventually get a kind of a consensus where, where people on all sides would be good for the country. Um, it, it wouldn't, you know, it would lead to um, positive dialogue and not be more controversy down the road. I mean, I we can get past that, but you know, what would be three policy uh-huh. changes you'd love to see?
2: Happen. And can, now, with those three, the first one doesn't have to go to extending the uh, podcast to two hours, correct? I think we're up to four hours now. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, because those <laughs> changing all three policies. So.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I, I would say that the overarching kind of theme of those three policy measures would be how, as a nation, can we be a nation of laws and a nation of grace? So, what does that mean mm-hmm. in three distinct policies? Number one, it means that we need a an enforcement system that, yes, keeps us safe, but also treats people humanely. So for example, at the U.S.-Mexico border, um, we should be focusing the majority of our re- enforcement resources on the cartels, because it's the cartels who are smuggling drugs into the United States and harming our families. But it's also the cartels that have monetized immigration, particularly from Central America, so that they are making money off of both trafficking drugs and smuggling people. So let's not blame the migrant for a perfectly rational and decision to pursue a better life. Let's blame the cartels and target the cartels who are, quite frankly, uh, the only ones winning in this situation. I could go on and on on the the enforcement question. But I think we need to have an enforcement system that is smart, that's effective, uh, uh, that targets the right players, but ultimately also treats people, migrants in particular, humanely. Mm -hmm. Second, for the undocumented population, roughly 10 million people, we need to be able to allow them to get right with the law, uh, uh, register for legal status, and get on a path to citizenship so that they can truly own the American dream. There's one thing we learned over the course of COVID-19 is that uh, without undocumented farm workers, folks at restaurants, our ability as a nation to respond or recover to COVID 19 would have been so much more difficult. So let's let's value the contributions um, of this community. And then third, and this is in some ways the most important, the most difficult, is that we need to actually have a functioning legal immigration system. Uh, And that means that we actually have we would have a visa programs that meet the needs of our economy, but also the needs of our families. Uh, So it's not, you know, a worker versus a family member. We are all human beings. We all want the dignity of work. We also want the dignity of being with our families. Um, So by increasing or by by establishing a functioning legal immigration system, you reduce pressure on the border. Um, You actually prioritize border enforcement resources on real threats. And over time, you actually have a process that people can go through as opposed to, a process that just leads them to becoming undocumented.
2: Hmm. And Ollie, as I listen to you talk about these policies, I'm also thinking about those who are part of our podcast community and who are listening in. Many would probably not fall into uh, becoming politicians, that that's probably not their career trajectory or what they've been involved in. So, what would you say to the average person who's listening, but still wants to somehow help with these types of policies? How how can we get involved?
0: Sure. Well, first of all, I would say that um, for for those of us who care deeply about the immigrant or the refugee that we've come to know and love, whether as you know a friend, a family member, a member of a church, or, or the the people the kids our, our kids go to school with. Um, we should not feel like we need to know everything about immigration policy. We just have to hold on to the basic principle of treating our fellow, our neighbor as a human being. Um, and I think if we st- have that as a starting point, all the policy questions fall into place. And I always want to say that because, you know, immigration policy always feels very overwhelming and complicated. So if we're all on the same page in terms of treating our fellow uh, people as human beings, Um, Then from there, the opportunities are to share our stories with each other, uh, support each other, again, whether it's, you know, a community organization, a church or otherwise. But then, you know, you have amazing organizations like World Relief um, that do such important work in terms of resettling refugees across the country. Um, And then we, in partnership with World Relief, we started an effort called Women of Welcome, where it's uh, evangelical women across the country who are uh, meeting with each other you know, in person, online, uh, engaging in Bible studies, so that they are getting their questions and their concerns addressed uh, kind of from within the community, but then also building a larger community along the way.
1: Could you, t- as you s- say that, I'm just thinking about what Jamie just asked and sort of in people in day-to-day life, and you mentioned earlier Idaho, Farmers, kind of rallying. Is there, Can you tell us a story, either you know, one from your yeah. book, which is so well written, or another story that you've experienced recently that really gives you hope for kind of change that can happen in people's hearts, as well as change that can happen to help, you know, a whole community, including the immigrants in the community, you know, thrive together.
0: Sure. So, one of the people that I've met over the years is um, Eric Costanzo. He is a pastor at I want to say south tulsa um baptist church in tulsa oklahoma and i've had the opportunity to you know be with him in meetings with members of congress uh we you know he and his son came to new york for an event that we did there um but in the book i tell the story of you know in essence how he came to realize that it was his responsibility as the leader of of his church not just to welcome immigrants and refugees into the congregation, but then also engage Senator Lankford, who has a long history of of, uh, of being in support of in particular refugee resettlement, um, but really, you know, helping Senator Lankford and other members of Congress in Oklahoma, seeing the value of immigrants and refugees to the state. And I've got to say that, you know, Oklahoma in particular, really played a, an incredibly important role in terms of the resettlement of Afghan allies last summer. Um, so you have people like, you know, Eric, you have uh, folks like uh, Maria Ramos in Storm Lake, Iowa, who in the early 80s, uh, she crossed the border with her parents at the time on foot. You know, she lived in a village outside of Puerto Vallarta and wanted to, they wanted to be with uh, her brothers who were working on a farm in northern California. A number of years later, she moves to Storm Lake, Iowa, which was then represented, which went on to be represented by Congressman Steve King, one of the most anti-immigrant members of Congress in recent history. Now, Maria Ramos, as a U.S. citizen, is a member of the Storm Lake City Council, and she's working every day to make sure that every resident of Storm Lake, whether they're a U.S. citizen or not, uh, uh, is able to thrive. So that's, you know, she is a story of not just the, the journey that people take, but how a community like Storm Lake can welcome and then support her leadership.
1: I'll just do, I'll do it. I'll let you ask the question. Question, Jamie, but just to underline that, uh, I spent some time in Tulsa with Eric, with Pastor Eric, and he guest lectured with our grad students here before, and he's great. And the way he's organized at that local level and engaging politicians. And it's where some of that narrative breaks down, like you said, where, okay, these are some folks who you know, should think one way if you look at the national narrative, but then on a personal level, they're connecting. And also you realize how important those immigrant uh, laborers who come up are to their economy locally. And it just helps to make it more complex. And you see the the opportunities to thrive together.
0: And uh, one other thing I wanted to share here, and I ended up writing about this as well, is that, you know, how much, um, how much pressure someone is in to, think differently than their community when it comes to something like immigration. So I wrote about, you know, a couple of women that we have met over the years that, you know, whose family relationships or, you know, they knew of friends whose family relationships were under severe stress because they were saying, you know, we as a nation need to welcome immigrants and refugees. And as I reflect on kind of those stories and writing about them, I've realized that I think one of the most important things that We all we also need to do is to show people grace as they change their minds, as they change their perspectives on something like immigration. Because, you know, in these in the in the times that we live in that are just so deeply polarized, um, we often are just so angry at somebody for, you know, having a different opinion that our anger, I think, plays a role in preventing them from thinking about these issues in a different way.
2: That's so helpful and such a, a important reminder for us to think about not only grace to those that we're welcoming, but also grace to those that may have a different perspective than what we do on immigration and refugee related issues. I wondered, what are some things that you've learned along the way about how to have these sorts of grace-filled conversations around immigration and refugee challenges?
0: Well, I mean, first of all, you know, I, uh, when we first started to do this work at the National Immigration Forum and really started to say, OK, you know, we as an organization are going to really try to figure out um, what it's going to mean, what it's going to take to engage folks who have serious questions about this issue. We had to we developed, if you will, kind of an informal motto, and that motto is to meet people where they are, but not leave them there. Uh, And what that means is that some of those initial conversations can often be really initially really tough and kind of really awkward because you Mm -hmm. have to sit in that tension of somebody's fears and and, you you know, real, real concerns about immigration and then have that conversation in a way that allows them to say, okay. I I am seeing this through a different lens. So I really think that, uh, you know, if there's one thing that I've learned over the years is, you know, how to sit through an awkward conversation with a a smile on my face um, that, that, you know, hopefully is is more of a vision of, okay, there's a way that there's a way that, you know, we can get to a better place. I love how
1: you frame that. I was writing my book about refugees and, and immigration, you welcomed me. And I was really thinking about it in the, as I was wrestling with it, thinking, oh, so much of this is our own personal journey, ourselves, as well as with others, sort of a spiritual journey of welcoming and grace and being vulnerable and stepping into those awkward conversations and and who's influencing me, who's influencing you, you know, the narratives we believe. So uh, yeah, I really appreciate how you do that. You think in this big picture about policy and then bring it down to this personal level, including the conversations we have with friends or loved ones or other people we bump into. Um, We'd love to hear about, you know, you've done such such great work at the National Immigration Forum and know that you have a transition coming up soon um, to the William and, and Flora Hewlett Foundation's U.S. Democracy Program. Can you tell us a little bit about that change and how that fits into your your hopes personally uh, with what you're doing in your vocation, but then also your hopes for how the country continues to, to grow in these questions of immigration and democracy.
0: Sure. Well, you know, as I was writing Crossing Borders, I really, it became very, very clear to me how certain politicians were you, whether domestically or globally, were using the issue of migration to undermine democratic norms. And, 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 I just realized that if we don't begin to have a different conversation on immigration and reach a different solution, much less have a different conversation of what it means to be a democracy, you know, things are just going to get harder and harder and worse and worse uh, for immigrants and refugees, much less any, any, anybody who lives in the United States or any democracy around the world. Um, so the the, pro, the U.S. Democracy Program at the Hewlett Foundation focuses on two particular areas of kind of democracy uh, reforms. One is trustworthy elections, Uh, really trying to understand how we can provide voters uh, better information on the veracity of elections. Second, ensuring that local election infrastructure um, has the capacity and technology to run trustworthy elections. And then third, so that people do have access to the ballot box. And the second uh, strategy uh, of the foundation in this area is around the strength and capacity of Congress and the executive branch to hire the talent that we need to serve in these positions. Um, that they're going through, you know, they have the operational processes in place to, in essence, be a 21st century government as opposed to, let's just generous, generously say, it's an 18th or 19th century uh, operations mm-hmm. of the federal government um but more than anything and the reason one of the reasons I'm really really excited uh for the challenge ahead is that the foundation wants to address these issues in a way that does not increase polarization because so i just think that so much like just like so much of our immigration debate so much of our democracy debate is dominated by you know the left wing or the right wing um i'm personally very interested in how do we put forward strategies around democracy that really bring the country back uh, together so that democracy to one person means religious liberty, to another person means freedom of speech, and to another person it means access to the ballot box. Those are those should not be uh, goals in conflict with each other, but right now they do. They feel like they're in conflict with each other.
1: Well, okay. Ali, we we since we don't have two our hours or four hours, um, <laughs> we're going to transition now. We started with the the big picture and love all this, and anyone who's listening can continue on into your your excellent book that goes into these kind of issues. And it's it's great facts, but it's also really great storytelling that you do in the Thank book. You. So thanks for comb- combining those together and now we'll transition we start with the heavy big talk and then we transition to small talk the opposite of uh life's interactions and so i wanted to ask you these five quick questions and start with what is something you're currently reading that you're enjoying
0: um what am i currently reading i am reading i have two books going one is uh, a little bit work oriented Uh, it is network propaganda in essence Hmm. you know what's the infrastructure around disinformation that's not, uh, it's an, it's an important read, but not a fun read. And then the fun read is, uh, uh, it's called the accidental accidental connoisseur. And so it's a, it's a, it's a book about wine. Um, so, you know, try to, try to
2: balance out both, both
0: sides, both <laughs> ends of the spectrum.
1: <laughs> nice.
2: Well, what's uh, a book you've given away more than, uh, others over the years? Uh, if I had, uh. Uh, if I was good at, if I was a good author, I would say my
0: book, but I'm not that good of an <laughs> author. Um, you know, I, I think one of the books that I really, really, um, uh, really value and it was a friend of mine who, um, uh, um, I'm trying to find it here. Uh, it's called short sentences. Oh, I'm sorry let oh, I found it this, the book that I've given away more than any other is um, several short sentences about writing. It's a book by Verlin uh, Klinkenborg and it is just a fantastic book um, of okay how do you how do you write a, how, do you, how do you write in a way that people actually want to read um, as opposed to you know academic writing or technical writing so that's the book uh, you know it I haven't I haven't forced staff to read many books. In my tenure at the forum, in fact, I think this is the only book that I've ever given to all the forum staff. I thought about quizzing them, but I thought that would be a little bit much.
1: <laughs> That's great. I look forward to checking that out. Um, third question, is there something you're currently using? It could be an app, a productivity method, a special a special to-do list, a manager, a travel product that you're finding especially helpful at the moment that some of us might find helpful too.
0: I mean, look. I am transitioning jobs, have to move to the West Coast, um, and moving into a completely different field altogether. I could actually use your recommendation.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever it takes, day by day, whatever it takes. <laughs> exactly.
0: An alarm clock? About that. <laughs>
1: I like it. Sounds good. I think we we have apps and then we usually devolve. I think Jamie and I both end up devolving into post-it notes is when it really gets bad. So maybe that's where you are.
0: Yeah, I've got like these multicolored index cards all over my desk. They've got random words on them. They don't make any sense. But I write something down on them. I feel organized. So.
2: Well, you know, just the fact that you write them on index cards versus post-it notes, it, it makes you, I think, appear even more stable. Right, like if somebody walks into my office and sees all my post-it notes, it starts raising lots of concerns about my well-being. But I, I might have to switch over to index cards for for that very reason. Then, um, so uh, uh, another question would be: What's something that maybe you've been listening or watching recently that uh, you've enjoyed?
0: Oh, let's see. Um, you know the uh, what have I been listening to? Or- watching um i gotta say i don't watch anything serious um i feel like you know the day job is serious enough um you know i think one of the most brilliant shows and it's a little bit of an acquired taste is um atlanta it's a it's by donald glover they're in their third season it is just um just a fantastic show that kind of just challenges culture in every possible way and uh It's it's just it's brilliantly written. It's brilliantly acted. It's, um, yeah. It's 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 pretty amazing show.
1: I've watched a few episodes. I've always wanted to go back to more. It's it's so creative. It felt like one of the more creative shows I've ever seen. uh, The ones that I saw. So
0: it really is. And this this uh, current uh, season, it's it's just kind of it's a little bit mind blowing sometimes.
1: Nice. And then last question. And so you're under stress at the moment. So this is good to be reminded of, uh, uh, what do you do to renew your body and mind uh, along the way? Um, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is
0: cooking. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, uh, you know, a good day to me is if I have enough time in the evening to like make a pretty good meal. Well, I don't know whether or not it tastes good, but you know, it's it's complicated <laughs> enough to keep me busy for an hour or two, um, but yeah, that's that's where I would say I, I find my joy is that is to, is to make a meal.
1: Nice. Well, thanks going to meal. Um, the meal metaphor. Thanks, Ali, for the work you've done for many years trying to make our country more hospitable. Thinking about that meal that people share together and I think it's been really important work and we wish you all the best as you transition to this other important work of of making sure our democracy can can help with immigration but also so many other issues so that we can can thrive together as a community and as communities so thanks for this time really appreciate the conversation with you Ali thank you so so much I, I really really appreciate it do both of those together and doing both of those together seems seem like um really important goals and important ways of being on that path of seeking how to do good better. So we're grateful to be seeking how to do good better along with you.
2: Learn more about the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, including our graduate degree and trauma certificate at the link in our show notes. You can attend the program online or in person and stay in touch. You can email us at producer at bettersamaritan.com. Thanks so much for bringing us along on your journey as we all endeavor to do good better.
1: This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com slash ct.